services. We are at 9.30 and 11. So come early and come ready to worship. Uh, guys, the guys in here, uh, the bathrooms will be open next week, too. <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> no more hiking over to Good morning, Fairdale. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah? I tell you, uh, yeah, like, like Phil said, my name is Ben, and it is good to be back. Uh, last August, Brandon was kind enough to trust Phil enough to let me come and hang out with you, and nobody threw anything. Uh, if you did, you missed. So, <laughs> uh, but no, back in February, uh, John let me tag in and lead worship, and that was a blast. I, 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 I literally, I even, I even made it out of here with one of those big, like big head cutouts of Phil, and so I kind of feel like I came home the winner that day. Uh, that was that was my trophy from the weekend, and it is proudly hanging in my office right now, motivating me at home. Um, with darts. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no. And some of you are looking at me right now and like, yeah, and you still ain't cut your hair. Uh, yeah, maybe next time. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, well, last weekend, you guys, you wrapped up this series through First Peter. And just as Phil said, next weekend is Easter. We celebrate Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate the day that changed the entire course of all of history. The day that we celebrate, everything hangs on that. Absolutely. We celebrate all of our hopes hanging on the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's because of this. All of the promises that come with it, it's because of this. With resurrection, we have everything. But without it, we have nothing. All of our hopes hang on resurrection. All of the promises come with resurrection. And so I sure hope that your heart is anchored there. And I hope that you plan on celebrating next weekend. And I hope that you plan on inviting everyone in your life to be here with you next week. I hope that's the plan for you. But I also know this. Here we are right in the middle. All right. This is, this is Palm Sunday morning. And I get to share it with you. What a privilege. And so as we dive in, I got to say this. I know there's people joining us on the World Wide Web out there. And so can we just welcome them into the room with us real quick? Let them know that they're with us. Yeah, we love that. We're so thankful that you're with us. I was talking with Brandon a few weeks ago, and he gave me the green light to preach about whatever I wanted. That seemed kind of risky. Um, so I'll, I'll just tell you what my mom would always tell me growing up. 
you get what you get and you don't throw a fit, okay? So, no. When we were talking, I was telling him that my mind, it just goes straight to Palm Sunday itself. It's Palm Sunday. So my mind goes straight to all of the passages that are, that are about Palm Sunday where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and all those moments, those snapshots leading up to it. These moments in his final week leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Many of us, what we would call Holy Week or Passion Week. And so my hope for our time together this morning, what we're going to do is we're just going to try and take a closer look at some of these moments. These snapshots along the way where Jesus is flipping the script. He's redefining, redefining everything. He is he's continuing to do and say the unexpected. He's bringing new definitions to everything that is happening. What is happening now? What is going to happen next? And why it all matters. He's redefining everything. And we're going to specifically take some time looking at some passages that talk about greatness. We're going to talk about this word greatness. And the reason why is because I think the world has a completely different take on that than what Jesus has. And it's one of the loudest themes screaming at us in this final week leading to the cross. And so we're just going to get after it. Greatness. I don't know about you, but this is, this is a word that I, I don't always know what to do with. It's kind of, there's a lot going on with it. I wrestle with it. I love words. I love knowing what words mean. I, I'm human. I have feelings. I have thoughts. I, I, want, I want the words that I say to, to carry weight. I want them to mean something. I, I recognize that. I also recognize that I'm a student of our culture. I want to I be a learner of what's happening around me, of why people do what they do. But I also want to be clear in that I love Jesus with all my heart. And I want his gospel to transform the world around me wherever these feet walk. And here we are, we find ourselves, maybe you're like me, caught in some of that tension. That tension between what the world maybe says something is and what Jesus says something is. We live in a culture that is redefining and revisiting and deconstructing every single word and giving new meaning, new definition to words. That is swirling around us all the time. We live in that tension. And it runs the risk of flying in the face of what Jesus is actually calling us to. This word, greatness. It was uh, several years ago, uh, my son Ezra, who is now 13, uh, he was seven years old at the time, and I was, we were talking about this topic, and I literally asked him the question. I said, when you think of greatness, what do you think it means? And Ezra said, he goes, awesome. And I was like, that's a pretty good answer, right? Like, that's a, that's a pretty good answer. And so I decided to dig a little, bit, a little bit further, and I said, well, when you think of the word awesome, what do you think of? And with a little bit of hesitation, he said, and suspicion, he says, Daddy? And I'm like, that's a great answer, okay? <laughs> that's a fantastic answer, all right? And so I decided, I'm like, okay, we got to keep going with this. I was like, what do you want, Ezra? <laughs> and he answered pretty quickly, like suspiciously quickly. He goes, a pocket knife? Uh, like he just jumped straight there. This kid totally played me, okay? He totally played me, and it worked. And he got a pocket knife. Uh, 
But, but before you question my parenting, okay, we did wait a little while before giving him a, a pocket knife so you, you can judge me later. Um, or you can celebrate me now. I mean, I, 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 got, I am the world's greatest dad. I have the mug to prove it, okay? Like, I have the mug to prove it. And some of you think, that's not possible. My coffee mug tells me the same thing, that I'm the greatest. Mine has my face on it, okay? So... No, I, I think it's funny because we've all been to a souvenir shop, right? We've all been to Cracker Barrel gift shop. Like, we're the greatest at everything. We wear all these things that tell us we're the greatest. I just think it's amazing that a kid, that a kid even at this age, is developing a working definition of what greatness is and what greatness isn't. He's already formulating a working definition of meanings and what things are. And how humbling for me, as his father, to get to be the one to shape that definition, to shape it to be true and to be right. Now, if you ask Google, Google's going to give you all kinds of stuff. Google will tell you if, you, if you search there like we do for everything else, it will say that greatness is the quality of being great. Okay, right? It'll tell you distinguished or imminent. It will use words like a state of superiority or giving synonyms like magnitude and majesty. Like, we don't talk like that, do we? Like, when somebody asks you, like, hey, how'd your day go? How you feeling today? How you feeling? Do you ever say, I'm feeling pretty superior right now? You may be thinking it, but you're not going to say it. You're going to say things like, I feel great, unless you don't. And then when somebody asks, how you doing? You're going to be like, I feel fine, right? Because fine means something totally different. And that, that's a whole other sermon series in and of itself. But greatness, it may not be something that's on the forefront of our minds and our everyday vocabulary, but if we're totally honest with ourselves, we kind of aspire to attain some of it, maybe all of it, or at least a little bit of it. We, we don't maybe know exactly what it means to be great or to possess the quality of greatness or, or how to attain greatness. We, we still want it, though. We still strive for something. We just use different words. We use words like, I want to be successful. Or I want to be significant. Or I want to be popular. I, I want to be remembered or recognized or respected. We just use different words. I want to be the best that I can be or at least better than you. Right? That's how we think so much of our moments. This sense of arrival, this trajectory that it will put us on. Where we start climbing ladders that maybe we were never called to climb. And we find ourselves chasing greatness, pursuing greatness and we don't even know it because we've allowed our culture to define it. It's often what will drive a great many of our decisions. We just don't think much about what we think. We just do things, even if it's subconscious. I mean, think back to when you were a kid. Think back to when you were a kid and you were playing sports. There was a time where you were either winning or losing, right? And nobody walks out onto the field thinking, I hope we lose today, right? Like we, there was a time, it, it's not the way things are now, like you either win or you lose. And nobody really wants to lose. Or music, I can guarantee you, 95% of the men that I have ever met that learned how to play guitar, they started because they wanted to win the heart of a lady, okay? That was their motivation, amen, right? That, that was the motivation, that was the drive. Or academics, why, we are, why we're driven to have good grades or accomplishment, it, it's because we don't like to lose, we want to win. We want a piece of maybe the prestige or the intellectual prowess and greatness. Think of our career paths. Think of our relationships. For each of us, maybe it's a different vehicle, but it's the same driver behind the wheel. There's still a motivation there. And you may think, Ben, that's not me. 
I don't have any of that motivation. I don't care about any of that. And maybe that's the case. So maybe let me ask you this way. Do you ever enter into anything thinking, I hope this blows up in my face. Do you go to work thinking, man, I hope I just tank today. Do you approach uh, your marriage or friendships thinking, I hope this turns out to be meh, right? We don't do that. Nobody does that. We aren't shooting for mediocre. We're shooting for great. And I don't want you to hear me wrong on this. I'm not saying um, that, it's, that it's wrong or it's bad to desire things to be good and healthy and strong. What I'm getting at is that I think our definition of greatness gets blurred and turned around and confused in our culture if we listen too much to what our culture says because our culture is committed to sending us sideways. I think our world is giving us all kinds of mixed messages about what greatness is and what it isn't. And it messes with our motives. Something my family has, we have a, we have a culture code, and it's the way that my, my wife and I are trying to teach our kiddos the ways of Jesus, okay, in our home. And a phrase that we say all the time is simply this, the world's values are not God's values. Disciples discern the difference. The world's values are not God's values. Disciples discern the difference. We live in that tension. That tension is not going to go away as long as we are on this side of heaven. We must be the ones to discern the difference because we live in a culture that is infatuated with celebrity. It is infatuated with self, self-promotion, self-preservation, selfies, everything, self. It's driven to make us want to make life more about us. To, to get what we want and to make it temporary. We go for the, the temporary, not the eternal. And I think it's because we want what we want and we want it now. Why do we think we go to the microwave, right? Because we don't want to have to wait. And whatever tasted that good coming out of a microwave other than a hot pocket, right? And it's still going to burn the roof of your mouth because you couldn't wait long enough for that thing to cool down, Right? Like, or when YouTube says, do you want to skip this ad? Of course I want to skip this ad. What made you think I wanted to watch the first eight seconds of it anyway, right? Don't make me wait another week for an episode. Give me the whole season right now. We want these things. We're drawn to these things. Social media, all of it, everything that culture is expressing itself through right now. It's redefining the way we see community. It's redefining the way we see relationships to make things about quantity than quality. And we get turned around in it. We get totally turned around in it. You could be famous or infamous overnight by what you choose to put online. (laughs) There's a gamble there. The world is telling us that greatness is within us, that it has more to do with what I do. It has more to do with what is within me. And I get it. I know that the world is changing. I know generations are changing. I know culture is changing. But that doesn't sound too different from what the world looked like when Jesus walked the earth. I don't think it looks different. And his definition doesn't match up with what the world is chasing. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive in. I want us to grab a hold of this concept that the world's values are not God's values. Disciples discern the difference. We take our cues from our king not our culture. We pursue him. We pursue him. We chase after him. 
And so I'm going to be reading from Matthew 20, okay? So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, words are going to be on the screen here, here in a few minutes. Um, uh, for me, it's in my Bible, it's, it's page 1468, but that isn't probably going to help you, okay? Um, you can make your way there now. I want, I want to say this before I kind of walk us through what's going on here. And it's simply this, that when we step into the story of Scripture, we do it with humility and we do it with expectancy, We trust that God is going to do something in us and through us in our time together in it. Because God's word says that it is alive and active. That it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, It knows our thoughts and our attitudes. It exposes who we are. And so we're not just reading a book here. We're stepping into the story of Scripture And God intends to do something with it. And so we do it with humility and expectancy. So here's what's happening. Right up to Matthew 20. Here's what's happening. This is right before Palm Sunday. Right before Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry that that marks our calendar is the beginning of Passion Week. And Jesus is doing a ton of teaching with his disciples. He's doing a lot of talking and teaching about what the kingdom of God is. He's bringing definition to what it is because he knows what they think it is. And he's telling them, no, it's not about that. It's about this. And he keeps using this same phrase over and over again, that the first will be last and the last will be first. He uses that phrase repeatedly when talking about what the kingdom is. And he keeps saying it over and over again to connect all the dots. The first will be last and the last will be first. And then he tells them this. We're headed to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man will be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. But three days later, he will rise again. And then this happens. This is what happens next, right after Jesus says this. Chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup? I'm going to drink. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but you, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom They have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together, kind of huddle up here. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, what on earth is happening here? (laughs) James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the disciples, they come to Jesus with their mom. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing to write down is they came with their mom. They came with their mom. That, that again, is a whole other sermon series. Some of you might already be squirming. Um, 
And she makes this absurd request. She makes this very revealing request. She wants her sons to be the right hand and left hand dudes. She wants them to be in the place of prominence. She wants them to be right where she wants them to be is Jesus comes into this kingdom that he keeps talking about. Basically, the sales pitch is this. I think we should just lock it in now, make them the VPs, tackle that part so as this unfolds, they're in charge. Why? Because every mama thinks their kiddos are the greatest. And only some of them are right. Okay? <laughs> right? Like this is what's happening in this moment. But she loves her baby boys. I'm sure that has everything to do with what she's going after. And, and Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? I mean, he seriously just told them, I'm going to die for this. There's going to be suffering ahead. This is the cup he's talking about. And they say, yeah, yeah, we can. Because they think they know what they're asking for, but they have no idea the suffering and sacrifice that it will cost. They have no idea what it will ask of them. And it's because they are so focused on the crown. But Jesus is focused on the cross. And he says, yeah, you're going you're gonna to drink from this cup because Jesus knows the suffering that's ahead for James and John. He knows what's ahead for them. But the other disciples, they're indignant, they're annoyed, they're agitated, they're angry. And the reason why is because they're like the nerve. <laughs> These guys are asking the questions that we wanted to ask for the seats that we wanted ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> They're just frustrated that James and John and Mama got to Jesus first, okay? They're, they're annoyed. They're, they're like, you, you have the nerve to do this. But then Jesus says, huddle up. We got to talk about this. He says, you know the conduct of the rulers. You know the high officials. You know how they abuse the power. You know how the world works, it's obsession with power and authority, but not so with you. That's not the plan. Not so with you. Instead, if you want to become great, there's that word again. If you want to become great, the greatest among you will be your servant. So you better be ready to serve. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life. As a ransom for many, not so with you. Jesus is telling James and John, you know what the world's definition is and you know how bankrupt it is. You know that it doesn't work and you know where it leads. Stop chasing the world's definition of greatness. And we can read this 2,000 years later and be like, I cannot believe their audacity to ask Jesus that. <laughs> and how different is it from how we live I mean, how different is it? I mean, how often have we been consumed by the world's definition of greatness to the point that we completely miss the point? We completely miss the point. The disciples, they, they are missing what Jesus was talking about because they are looking out for number one. They're chasing greatness in the world's eyes. They, they want the seat. They want the place of honor. They want the place where they can look to everyone else from a place of superiority, a place of greatness. Have you ever found yourself chasing greatness and learned that you are running in the wrong direction? Have you ever found yourself climbing a ladder 
that you thought would get you where you wanted to be and it was leaned up against the wrong building? Have you ever found yourself trying to get to the top and all it led you to was the bottom? We're no different. Are we taking our cues from culture or from our king? Because it's only seven verses later that we find ourselves in the triumphal entry. And in those seven verses, Jesus gives sight to two blind men who had more spiritual sight than the disciples did in that moment. But we find ourselves seven verses later with the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday moment, an event so significant, so defining and distinguished, it made it into all four Gospels. But let me read some of this to us now. Chapter 21, pick it up in verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Talking about Zechariah. Verse 5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them. They obeyed. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You have Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey. One that had never been ridden. And this animal, historically, it's symbolic of humility and peace and Davidic royalty. And the disciples, they lay their cloaks on the colt so that Jesus can sit on this donkey. And the people show up. And there's already a bunch of people walking there with them. But people show up and they are pumped up. And they throw their cloaks on the ground before him. They throw branches on the ground before him. Again, an act of royal homage. And they welcome him with fanfare and praise, waving palm branches, chanting Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. Save now that he is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. And he makes his way to the temple where he proceeds to teach the rest of the week and to heal the rest of the week. And he even kicks some people out of the temple that are up to no good. Jesus, his purpose in riding into Jerusalem, the royal city, the capital city, he's proclaiming quite clearly, quite loudly, I know who I am and I am your Messiah. I am the king of Israel. He's fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. He knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is going public. He is riding in as a conquering king. And he is hailed by the multitudes as such. In Luke's account 
the Pharisees, they're so ticked off. They're so upset that they even ask Jesus, tell Jesus, tell him to sit down and shut up. It, they use very strong language. And I love this. Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. Literally telling them that even creation is more spiritually sensitive to what's happening than you. The rocks are more tuned in to what is unfolding than the Pharisees. The crowd is joining the, the chorus of creation because they know what's coming. In John's account, the Pharisees say, this is doing us no good. The whole world has gone after him. And like a king entering the capital city, he goes to his palace, not an earthly palace, a spiritual palace. He goes to the temple because his kingdom is not of this world. Because his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Remember, not so with you. Not so with you. No longer are the disciples told to be quiet about who he is. Because Jesus is openly declaring who he is. That he is the Messiah. He is the one that they have been waiting for. He is the one that they've been looking for. And this is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. Because in this moment, this is where definitions of greatness collide. This is where kingdoms collide because they're all waiting for a Messiah. They're all waiting for a Savior, but their expectations, what they're waiting for, they're looking for someone to save them and deliver them in a temporal way. They wanted someone to lead a revolt against Rome. They want, they're oppressors, they're occupiers. They wanted someone to stand up and fight against Rome, someone who would conquer their enemies. But Christ came in on a donkey. Christ came in on a donkey, and that week, as it unfolded, they learned. He's not what they were expecting. In those hosannas, they turned to cries of crucify him. Here he is. Everything they need and nothing that they want. The contrast is stark. This king coming as a lowly servant on a donkey, not a prancing steed. He's not in royal robes. He rolls in walking on the clothes of poor and humble people. Because Jesus comes to conquer our hearts. He comes to conquer our hearts and to bring peace to our hearts, not by force, but by invitation. Will we let him in? And he brings with him love and grace and mercy and his own sacrifice. Humble king, humble servant. So the question maybe for us is, who are you waiting for? Who are you expecting Jesus to be? Because even if you've been following him for a long time, we start building expectations of who Jesus is and who we want him to be. We cry out for him, right? Right? And it makes perfect sense to cry out to him and ask him to save us now, deliver us now. And we want him to, we expect him to conquer our struggles, our suffering, and sometimes it's because the pain is so deep that we know we cannot do this on our own. But sometimes, sometimes we cry out to him out of convenience because we don't want to walk through service and suffering to get to the glory that we want. Sometimes we want there to get there without the painful path to get there. 
And sometimes it's so that we just don't want to have to trust him anymore. We don't want to have to need him anymore. We get to that place where we think and we, we think we can handle it and we learn that we can't. And suddenly dependence means something entirely different. Dependence is so much harder than what we realized. And sometimes, sometimes it's just because we really, really, really want to be king ourselves. The thought of VP isn't even enough for us. We seek after positions that we are not fit for. So hear me. Trust me. You will never stop needing Jesus. And you will never start needing him less. You will never Stop needing Jesus and you are never going to start needing him less. We cannot wean ourselves off of our need for Jesus. There is never a point where you are going to be called to just let go of him. No, you are going to be called to stand firm and cling tight and hold fast, trusting that the path that you're on, that his presence is what you need in your pain, in your suffering, in your struggle, that he's present and that there is purpose in every bit of it. What are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for? Because if you've never claimed Jesus, do you know that he's coming after your heart? Do you know that's what his kingdom is? He wants your whole heart, and he's everything that you need. If Jesus has made his triumphal entry into our hearts, he reigns there in peace and love. And if we claim him as Savior and King, those qualities... They start pouring out of us into everything around us. And we see what greatness actually is because greatness in God's eyes is this thing called humility. It's a movement downward. It's a movement from a high place to a low place, from first place to last place. It's not ascending, it's descending. Sometimes when we think of humility, we think it's weak. It's not weak. It's not groveling. It's not thinking that you're worthless. It's being free of the pride and the arrogance because you are so confident in who you are in him. You know who you are and you know whose you are. Not so with you. There's a distinction between which kingdom we are living for and as Christ followers He's calling us to something greater than the world's definition of greatness. And I tell you, God will do greater things in your obscurity than the world can do in your prominence. Trust me. He does not share glory. He's calling us to humble ourselves, to serve because our identity is in him. And that's the roadmap he's given us. Greatness is not found in position or power. Greatness is found in posture, in character, in our dependence, in our obedience, in our humility. And so we've got to ask ourselves, am I chasing the world's definition of greatness? Is this my definition? Is, this, is my definition his definition? What am I chasing? What am I going after? Am I following the cues from our culture or from our king? And I'm, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying, oh, I got to go home and delete all my social media. 
There is no reason for me to try and get good grades or do well at my job or there's no point in me trying to have a healthy marriage or, or do good things. That is not what I'm saying. It makes perfect sense. It is good and life-giving to desire good things, great things. What I'm saying is guard your heart and guard God's definition of greatness because the world is going to tell you otherwise. Guard that definition because he's called us to lead in the way that we serve. He's called us to run to those messes, not run from them. He's called us to be present in them, not peace out on them. And he's called us to let that love that he's poured into us leak out into everything. He's defined greatness as putting, as putting others first. And later that week, even as the tides are turning against him, Jesus keeps preaching the same message. In chapter 23, in verse 11, he says, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. There is a descent. There's a movement downward. And the questions maybe look like this. What would it look like if we just chose to lead by letting others go first? What would it change about where we find our joy? What would it change about the way we treat our boss or the way we treat our coworkers or the way we treat our employees? What would it change about the way we treat a spouse or our children? What would it change about the way we, we treat our friends? What would it change about walking across the street to be with our neighbors? What would it change about our conversations? I think it changes everything because he's calling us to a completely different kingdom, a completely different definition of greatness, and it will change the world. If you are living for the glory in this world, it will be temporary. But if you are living for the glory in the world to come, it will be eternal. Don't settle for the temporary when God gives the eternal. Don't settle because there is more to come. There is more to come. Later that week, later that week, some of the last moments that Jesus had with his disciples before leading them to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him, he's sharing the Passover meal with them. And we see how, how Jesus embodies greatness. In chapter 13 of John's gospel, this is where he says that he is about to show them the full extent of his love. And this is the meal that they share together in the upper room where Jesus gets up and he grabs a towel and he pours some water into a bowl and he begins washing the feet of the disciples. And we skip over that because feet are gross and we don't like to think about feet, do we? Right? Now you're thinking about feet. <laughs> Their feet, they're walking around in open-toed sandals in roads that everything poops there, okay? These feet... They're disgusting. These are incredibly gross feet. And here is Jesus, literally the definition of greatness. The savior of the world, the only one in the room with the title. And he's the only one. While they're arguing over who gets to sit next to him, he washes their feet. Even the feet of Judas, the one who betrayed him. And it's because none of them thought that it was their job. In verse 12 of that chapter, that's when Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? 
You call me teacher. You call me Lord. Do you see what I just did? I just washed your feet, yo. Now do it. I've set the example for you. Do it. You know these things. You have no more excuses, but you actually have to do them. As if to say, if you think you are above this, you just don't get it. Stop chasing the world's definition of greatness and start chasing him. And get ready to get your hands dirty. So maybe the question for you this morning is, whose feet are you washing? Whose feet might God be putting in your way? Those stinky, stinky feet. That he has given you an opportunity in obscurity. That place that you could serve where you get absolutely no recognition. That place where you have to lean dependently on the power of the Holy Spirit sustaining you in order for you to serve in this way. Where are those moments around you? Because what if, what if we turned in to seize those moments, to seize those opportunities with our parents, with our children, with our spouses, with our neighbors and the people we work with? What if we didn't have to wait to be scheduled to walk across the street to serve our neighbors? What do we think happens? The world turns on its head and people encounter the gospel. Kingdoms collide, but revival unfolds. That's what happens. Because Jesus says in that same meal, I'm going to give you another command. And I'm sure he's told it to him multiple times before. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. Not love however you think love is or whatever you think it is. Not the way you would do it. As I've loved you. Because that's how the whole world is going to know that you belong to me. We love. It's how he's chosen to make himself known. And this lesson in humility, it speaks of this service, and it is most fully exemplified on the cross because that's where Jesus knows that he's headed, on their behalf and on our behalf. That night, in the upper room, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. And so here in a moment, a few moments, we are going to share in communion. And hopefully on your way in, you're handed a cup with the elements in it. But it was in these moments with his disciples, again, Jesus, he's always teaching. This is where he, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he, he said, take it and eat it, that this is my body. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he offered it to them. And he said, drink this. Drink this. He said, drink this. This is, this is my blood of the covenant. This is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we enter into this time, let me just tell you, if you have never claimed Jesus as Savior and King, you may be like, I don't know what's happening right now. (laughs) It's okay to just be still and let this moment be this. Let your heart hear this. His sacrifice is for you and his invitation is to you and he is ready when you are. But if you have, if you have anchored yourself in the saving grace of Jesus, 
in these next few moments, as you are still and you breathe and you give pause, give thanks and share in these elements and remember that this sacrifice, it is for each of us. And the work of the cross now defines us as rescued. He has called us to a new way to live. He's called us to a new way to love. And remember, we must give thanks to a God so good that he would find us worth it to endure what he endured so that we could be where he is. Because his glory as our Savior It's built on his willingness to serve, his willingness to suffer, his willingness to obey in submission and trust, and his his will to trust in God's will that it had purpose because the greatest glory goes to the only one who suffered the most. There are no shortcuts to greatness that don't come with a cross. But because of this work, every week is Easter. Every day is resurrection. Because we live in light of an empty tomb. Let me pray. We're going to take communion. Father, God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your love. And we thank you for your son. And we thank you, God, that you have found us worth it. God, you call us to deeper things. You call us to places and spaces that are so uncomfortable, but they are right where you are. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to those places that we would be the hands and the feet that we would be the ones that hold so fast to your promises, God, that what we would be about is making sure that everyone else joins the party that you invite us to. Show us some feet, Jesus, and remind our hearts that in this bread and in this juice, Your body, your blood, your love saved us. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can take communion now.
eyes will feel it. You're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. 